This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Exasperated DM. Everyday Historical Life. Ellie Akers. And Brother 12. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features five original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots to bend your players' heads. Escape a labyrinthine airport. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. Available soon from your friendly local game store. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And look at that. Here we are in the gaming hut already. Oh my goodness, the GM has just tumped the table over. He's so mad. Robin, GM's GM's gotten mad a lot in the past. Now they're all delightful. They're 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 beautiful equals and everyone it's like a frickin' Coca-Cola commercial out there. But in the past, Robin, in the past Things were bad. But but do past framings influence the present, Ken? No. No, Robin, you can remake society anew every day. <laughs> well, we know uh, Ken's been, uh, is either being sarcastic or has been kidnapped and is <laughs> pleading for help. <laughs> that's that's my problem is I'm too sarcastic to have one of those um, help meme things. Yes, exactly. People just, ah, well, he's probably just being sarcastic. And if not, we'll, we'll get his occult library. Right. Worst case scenario. Yeah. He's disappeared. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're talking about the exasperated uh, GM trope. Uh, so uh, when role-playing was invented in 73, it was uh, invented. People started playing it. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, in the uh, written works of Gary Gygax and others, the trope already appears almost instantaneously that the uh, players are a bunch of uh, ungrateful mopes who the uh, <laughs> put-upon uh, GM has to uh, uh, put up with get in line and uh, and wrangle that uh so uh the question i want to uh, look at is uh is the exasperated gm trope a uh thing that we uh need to be on guard against and to uh, reverse and uh, invert uh or is it just natural humor arising uh, from good the fun. true facts of role playing which is that the players are in fact ungrateful mopes who went off the <laughs> other corner of the map when I went to all this trouble to create a grotto full of Sawagin. Uh, mm. So, Ken, is this just uh, happy fun times, or does it make our uh, hobby look uh, unnecessarily annoying, and is there a better uh, way to get at that humor? Well, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's, there's types and variants of the exasperated GM, and there's... Uh, and I'm going to say, just given the smooth, superb way that Gary ran everything else in his life. I'm sure being at his table was a, was a charming experience and that no one had any reason to be an ungrateful mope. Yeah. Uh, when Gary Gygax lectured them about their bard. Unless you well um, actually him about a glaive. Yes. Oh God. That must've been the worst. I'd be turning the table over, frankly. But, um, I think that as with anything, if you think of, uh, your gaming group as not just an, uh, a storytelling collective, not just a bunch of uh, friends who get together to engage in America's newest, best, and most vibrant art form. But you also think of yourselves as the cast of a uh, redonkulous comedy of some sort. Someone's going to be the straight man. That's just the nature of the universe. And the GM picked that role. So the players, the whole point, the entire exercise of role-playing is come up with an idea and bounce it off the GM. And that structurally leads to come up with a dumb idea and bounce it off the GM. And 
<laughs> the trouble is that the social reward in the moment for a dumb idea is often better than the social reward for a good idea. Because a good idea leads everyone to say, that's an excellent idea. Let's start playing. Whereas a dumb idea leads to eight more dumb ideas and a hilarious bit. And so the trick in this, as in literally every other human interaction, is to be able to see past the immediate to what's going to happen down the road if this continues. So the notion of the GM being exasperated with a bunch of, let us not say ungrateful, because I think that is invidious, but let us say um, uh, Airedale-headed uh, mopes <laughs> is that uh, you are going to, it's just going to keep coming up. It, it's never not going to be a thing. And the trick is to maintain real affection at the table, obviously, don't hate your players, don't be adversarial toward your players, don't resent your players. For God's sake, it's your hobby. Fix something about that hobby if it is an opportunity for resentment or anger or any other bad thing that you don't want in your life. But also, I think it's more fun if you put the joke on yourself. It's not like, my players are ungrateful mopes. The joke is, I spent all this time building that Salwagin pit, and wouldn't you know it, wah, 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 the players went to the desert. I didn't know Player 101, yes. Yeah, and so uh, I think that a lot of it is, you know, that exasperation is going to happen in play because that's the nature, literally, of the art form. But I think that your response to it can be either selfish, embittered, and ungrateful yourself, Mr. GM, I'm looking at you, or it can be this is just the nature of things and everyone had a good time and we had fun in the desert. And eventually it turned out there was a teleport rock and they sent back to the Salvagin pit. Only this time they were all very thirsty. So it worked out great. Right. I think what the, the thing about the exasperated GM trope is that it sort of points to a uh, power assumption or a dynamic that is uh, not necessarily the most fruitful for being a great GM. In right. That, that it's your job to sit up and, 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 fly straight and listen to me lay out my beautiful world of elder guard or whatever. Right. And I, I have all these plans with, uh, with which you can only interfere. Right. <laughs> you know, you can either go along with what I had in mind or you can be a, a pain and I'm going to have to. If you are very good, I will allow you to roll dice during my novel reading. Yes. Um, <laughs> or, you know, in the uh, first edition D and D dungeon master's guide, there's a little bit about controlling your players when they engage in too much side talk. You have them hit by 3D6 uh, blue bolt. <laughs> right. Hit your players with a mysterious lightning bolt. Well, first of all, uh, if you're a serious world designer, you're breaking your own frame of, of your world. <laughs> Unless you've very much established that there's some god, uh, omnipotent god who hates side talk. Yes, exactly. Uh, that uh, Meta, the, the, the god of uh, getting the narrative back. It's, it's the 11th commandment. Um, and the whole idea of there, there being a track and you're being the, the authority figure, the teacher, the professor, the coach. Who's uh, now? It's true that certainly a big part of successful GMing is kind of managing the mood at the table and making sure that the uh, side talk doesn't uh, get too out of hand. But if there's anyone who uh, you know repeatedly insists on being a cut up uh, and and a uh, detracting from the game experience, you're also detracting from the game experience uh, by throwing lightning bolts at them is not going to help. Yeah, that's not that's not going to un, un uh, screw your play experience. Right. And and this is why I think it's helpful to uh, instead of the uh, perhaps the exasperated uh, dungeon master, the uh, puckish and uh, adaptable game moderator is perhaps the thing to go for so that uh, having a joke uh, in your text that players being players may well do X. Uh, there's nothing at all wrong with that because it's informative. Yes, that's just lived experience, Robin. They're definitely going to do X. <laughs> and also that that is to, to pitch that, I think, uh, it, as more of the fun that your yeah. role as a game master is not to see your plans ruined by contact with the players, but rather that your plans are a fallback that uh, if they're willing to be led especially if you trick them to th into thinking that they're leading themselves or if they just want the assignment for the evening and they're happy to do it, yeah. that that is part of the, the fun and challenge of, of running a game and that it is perfectly natural that people engage in side talk and they come up with dumb ideas and they decide to poke part of the setting that you haven't uh, uh, figured out what it does yet. Right. That's all part of the deal. They're not ruining it. They're bringing it to life by participating in it. And uh, you've got to be flexible and ready to go. And here's a bunch of tools to enable you to do that. And if you've got someone who's 
an inveterate pain in the ass. Uh, you don't hit them with an imaginary lightning bolt. You hit them with your hiked thumb and eventually ask them to, to leave the group if they really are genuinely ruining things as opposed to just making you improvise and think on the on the fly. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, the, the player uh, who in, in the traditional um, uh, uh, a breakdown of player types is the Scooby, the player who thinks outside the box, zigs when others would zag, when literally it's called the dungeon of zag. Um, that player is almost always, uh, assuming they're not a, a, a monstrous human being, but they're almost always there as a, as a great resource for you because they prevent you from getting bored with your world. They make your world more real because now you have to think, okay, what would happen if this, you have to go into your world and, and imagine a, re, a realistic or uh, realistic is not the right word, but a, 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 an appropriate response to whatever wild idea your Scooby player came up with. And, and at the moment you may say it would have been nice if you'd, told me before I statted out this entire encounter that you are going to skip the encounter. But in the moment, that is good play that is on your feet thinking, and it should be rewarded with at least improved engagement with another part of the dungeon or another part of the universe that you did not anticipate uh, shining a light on. And that that happened to me literally yesterday in my game, and it has happened to me game after game after game, and it is the reason I'm still doing this. As opposed to just uh, reading my novel slowly to people who occasionally re roll dice is because that is a an opportunity for me to get excited and learn stuff about my setting that I hadn't uh, uh, given enough thought to or that I hadn't given any thought to because literally no one would do this. Um, and then they do that. Uh, don't treat it as someone ruining your story. Think of it as someone expressing vast interest in the appendices or another plot line or some other part of your story that now you get the fun of making up at the moment in literal collaboration with someone that is actually the best part of GMing, not the part where they obediently salute and march into the 10 by 10 room to be slaughtered by bugbears. Right. And to, to move into a thing that uh, I always say, the uh, thing that they're looking to get out of the game is not necessarily the one uh, there's no one ideal style of play. And so right. uh, if you uh, have a notion in your head that you are trying to lead people toward a particular play style, often one with more characterization in it, uh, that uh, <laughs> you uh, want to embrace the fact that some people don't want to get into the, the uh, uh, heavy storytelling aspects of it. And they're there for the hitting stuff or the tactical part, or just to sort of be a kibitzer in the group and get some laughs. And as long as, uh, you can harmonize what everybody uh, separately wants and then move toward a conclusion uh, that is uh, partly uh, what you wanted because you have to have fun too, but also a gestalt uh, result of what everybody wants, that that's the objective, that you are uh, not trying to uh, make sure that they stay on track, uh, as the phrase often is, or that they play in a particular way, but rather that everybody has fun. And so if you uh, think of yourself as a facilitator of fun rather than as uh, a creator whose creations are being sullied by the paw prints of others. <laughs> by filthy human by, interaction. Yes. Uh, that I, I think that uh, you will not have to be an, an exasperated uh, GM and you won't have to uh, uh, complain. Unless you're doing it as part of a bit. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so you can, you can have fun with it and also uh, recognize that people's moods change over time and that the people you think of as exasperating might be tired. <laughs> they might have <laughs> work stuff on the go. They might not be in the frame of mind for the thing that you had uh, planned that night because uh, this is a hobby. And one thing that concerns me a lot is different expressions, uh, whether it's the way that people uh, savage each other online or uh, this sort of uh, cranky old school uh, trope. Uh, things that make role-playing seem to the interested outsider as the worst hobby in the world. Right, yeah. <laughs> and oh, oh good, I get to sit at a table and have an older man yell at me. That I don't do enough of that in my life. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was hoping there'd be a lot of lectures on the Napoleonic War for the first hour. Hey, hey, back off. <laughs> that's important backstory, Robin. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, 
try and uh, try and make it fun is the uh, uber point, and try and make your exasperation fun too, right? As you said, that's suggested. Right. Make it make it a bit. Well, uh, there's uh, one thing that's never exasperating, and that's listening to an exciting commercial, uh, because we know that after the exciting message, there's another segment waiting on the other side. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. We sit in a room full of shelves, and upon those shelves are books. Many, many books. And most of them do not have water damage, because we are in the book hut. And uh, Ken, I, I hear you had a, a recent... A tragedy which will throw terror in the heart of all Ken and Robin listeners. Uh, yes, the um, uh, roof of my house uh, sprang a leak. Well, it sprang a leak probably a little earlier. Uh, in fact, I know that it sprang a leak much earlier because when we came, uh, we had to bring the roof guy out over and over and over again to unleak it. And the unleaking, as with all things of man, has uh, corroded in the face of a, of a harsh uh, Chicago winter uh, or 10 Chicago, harsh Chicago winters. And once more, uh, the roof leak is back. And this time it's right over the HP Lovecraft and mythos associated bookshelves in my office. So I was up all night last night, uh, not writing as is my wont, but ferrying tubs of water away from my books. So, so were there casualties or, or just a close call at this moment? Uh, so far, the water damage seems to have been restricted to a few special titles, um, the Lovecraft Annuals from uh, Hippocampus and uh, maybe Joshi's Rise and Fall and Rise of the Cthulhu Mythos might have gotten uh, too wet to live, but we'll see. Right. They're sitting in the other bedroom right now, hoping to dry themselves. Well, this question from Patreon backer Corey Pierno, I think, refers to books which, uh, at, as of this recording are uh, perfectly safe, Yes, which are books... In the basement. Right. Uh, so the, uh, the question here is, what recommendations do you have for including or creating the daily life of the everyday Joe in fiction or role-playing? Uh, any great resources for researching the daily lives of people from the past? And there's a, a third part of that question, which I will hold until later, as is my <sighs> won't. As is your won't. Now, I know general categories. I do not have a bunch of these books in my basement, but... Among the places that you want to go to for uh, just details of daily life and material culture, often kids' books will do a much uh, better job of that, or museum catalogs. But uh, can I bet you have much more specific recommendations? Uh, well, much of it depends on the individual era, because obviously there are very few books that are just, here is everyday life. Although I will say, for example, that a big, broad topic like uh, Ray Tannehill's food in history is pretty good because you have at least an idea. That, oh, you can't have tomatoes. We're before the Columbian exchange or, oh, that's weird. Uh, lobsters used to be cheap. So there's lots of fun details in that. And I think taking that kind of information on board lets you sort of sense when a book is playing you false, either a novel or some other source that you're using. And you can go back and say, I don't think that that's what people were actually eating back then because I read Ray Tannehill. But individual eras generally have individual books. There is a classic of the genre called What Jane Austen Ate and Charles Dickens Knew, which sort of I don't know if it kickstarted the whole genre of, hey, let's talk about normal middle class people. I mean, no one really talks about poor people in any of these times because it's, it's, it's either depressing or we don't have a lot of evidence 
or um, no one's bothered to dig it up because there aren't material records necessarily that say poor people in Rome got a handful of barley and they were happy. You have to sort of figure more out. Right. Uh, the, the quotidian records are at least from people who run businesses, right? This is, yes. We have like yeah, inventory lists from Sumeria, uh, mm-hmm. but if you are starving in Sumeria, you're not writing down how hungry you are. You're running around right. trying to find a, a way to get food. And, and no one is writing down the rations necessarily for the for the farm workers in Sumeria, except in the very broadest sense that the overseer had to buy such and such number of, of minas of grain or so-and-so number of uh, sheep. And you're like, well, were the sheep to be eaten? Were they to be turned into uh, sheep skins and used industrially? What's going on? They don't, we don't, we don't have a lot of those information. We don't have that information necessarily for people in our own world right now today. Um, you know, try and, try and find out what a, a poor person in Jakarta is doing. And it's going to be a lot harder than finding out what a tourist in Jakarta is doing or a rich Jakarta. And, and also by the very nature of things, uh, wherever you are on the economic scale, if something is completely mundane to you, by the very nature, you don't write that down. You just take that for granted. Right. Um, so, for example, my uh, medievalist uh, friend who uh, studies, among many other things, the uh, types of bread uh, being made in Tudor England, there's just a list of all the different kinds of loaves. But what those are, it, in, in period, it went without saying. And now no one said it, so it didn't get written down. Yeah, there you go. Um, there's a, there's a series called the time travelers guides. And those are mostly again, English history because they're by a British historian who knows not to get outside of his hoop when he's writing these things. Um, and there's one to medieval England and one, I think to, uh, Victorian England. I'm not sure which ones there are, but there's a number of these sorts of things. And then there's less notable ones, I think for other, for other eras and other places. So there's, uh, for example, there's a series called, I think, uh, daily life in, in ancient Rome and another one that's daily life in ancient Greece and another one that's daily life in ancient Egypt. And those are good compendia, but again, they, they accept that poor people exist. They will even talk about them, but did, is a fish head a lucky thing or a, or everyday thing? If you are a poor person in Greece, who knows? Uh, but we know that people did eat fish heads and they uh, uh, enjoyed them uh, nice and, and uh, uh, salty and rotten and mushed up with all the other things to give them flavor. It was the umami of the day. I imagine it's situational that if you're eating a fish head, that's good. And if someone is hucking a fish head at you, that is that is Yeah, that's bad. that's more of a gen- of a universal human truth. Yeah, because so right? we, you know, like I said, we have to fill in the fill in the blanks. Um, so this brings us to the next part of the question, which is. How would you recommend creating the daily life of an average person in a fantasy or secret world setting? So I guess the next question is, what is different uh, for people in their daily lives in your world uh, versus uh, the uh, the historical world that uh, we might be starting with? And so uh, the most obvious thing is the existence of magic. How does, does the magic uh, of the gods, for example, allow greater fertility in this world? than it does uh, in the historical equivalent, uh, in which case your economy is robust and you have a bigger middle class and you have more people selling all the sorts of things that adventurers like to go and buy. And even poor people can have fish heads and sheep meat. Yes, exactly. And so uh, everywhere you've got an an efflorescence of uh, of, uh, culture and relative wealth. uh, And uh, I think uh, that's something that player characters like as they, uh, I think, prefer a more fantastical version of historical settings without yeah. the uh, squalor and starvation. Yeah, and I, I think and that horror. it's not an, a, a ridiculous thing to prefer the Renaissance fair to the Renaissance. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> turkey legs are better for one thing. Right. Um, and so one thing you can do is you can extrapolate outward from a, uh, a more uh, robust economy. But there's a certain point uh, where the daily lives of people become weirder and they become more alien, right? If they're, just have uh, bread that is uh, uh, extra nutritious, that's one thing. But if they have ghost bread that then mm-hmm. enables them to uh, uh, see into the realm of the dead, that is, you know, cool if it's one uh, day out of the year when you have the special ghost bread. But if you have a culture that is always seeing into the realm of the dead, then they are very, very different than they've been. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, their daily life is now miraculous and and bizarre. So... The, uh, I guess the question is how far you want to go between the world that feels real, the way that sort of uh, Tolkien added 
um, mimesis and sensory detail to what previously was sort of a fairy tale tradition in English literature, um, and how far again you want to go into a fantastical extrapolation. And so if it's just A that you want, um, I think just getting some museum catalogs or finding, you know, putting stuff on, on drop mark, getting images, putting them on Pinterest or, or what have you that are, you can just say, well, this is what swords look like in this country. Uh, this is, uh, what the, what the pots look like. Uh, here's the, uh, the glaze on them because after a certain point, the whole thing about mundane life is it's mundane and unless That's you, mundane. Yeah. uh, yeah. So you, fewer you, ogres. Yeah. So, so you might want to create the idea that there's a, a reality there, but I don't know how much time you want to spend doing more than just sort of suggesting that on the surface and, um, you know, a, a Pinterest board and a few references to what people eat, uh, and, uh, and drink, uh, with the typical sort of fantasy slash science fiction thing of, you know, two real things and a weird thing. So it's like, uh, well, the bar serves, uh, ale, wine, and, uh, uh, spirit toxin. Uh, which one of those do you want? And so mm -hmm. that uh, creates the idea of difference uh, within the nest of something that is uh, uh, familiar and that most players, uh, unless uh, someone really is into wine varietals and wants to spend 10 minutes bending your ear about that, in which case you cut them off after a minute too because everyone else is falling asleep. So it's about having a few, I think, little details to sort of slink in every so often to create the illusion of depth and reality without actually providing a lot of unnecessary exposition about what characters who the players don't care about are doing. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the reason that you're having a fantastical adventure, regardless of the genre is that daily life is either too real, right? No one wants to play a game in which you've got uh health crises and you might get fired and you've uh, your, your kids aren't talking to you. That's, that seems awful. Um, and if you do, you're going to play it in a heightened way where one of you is a mobster or something and play drama system. But the, the whole point of, of, of fantasy writ largely, and as Tolkien also knew, is that at some point you leave the Shire, you leave comfortable old Hobbit land where everyone smokes a pipe and works uh, nine hours a week or whatever it is. And you have to go out and, and face dark forests and dragons and, and whatnot. And so incorporating daily life over and over and over unless you are deliberately running a game, say, of uh, urban adventure where you are a, uh, a thieves guild working in the seams of an enormous medieval city, medieval style city, um, it, it's, it defeats the purpose. It, it kind of, unless you're doing it as a brief, you know, once you've, you know, fought the ogres and the dragons and you, and you make it to this little town on the river, oh, you're reminded of the simple folkways of the nice river folk. And they, and they feast you with, um, uh, with their sheep and their fish heads and, and you enjoy a, a hearty dance to their primitive flutes and lutes. And, and that's great for about a, about that much time of game, because the last thing you're going to do as fantasy characters is to say, now tell me about the uh, kinship uh, rules for marriage in this little river town. I'm very curious about landholding yeah. and all the things that are actually the things that everyone there is always thinking about when the ogres aren't actually attacking them. Right. And how many of your wives died in childbirth? And right. Uh, when you go to the city, everything is covered in feces. And at night, it gets extraordinarily dark and no one can actually do anything outside. And if you would that... list your carbohydrate intake, this would be very important for future historians and our role playing game designers. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's I think always a balancing act between the uh, mimetic detail and the uh, stuff that we want to be in denial of uh, when we engage uh, in escapism. And if there's one thing we can't escape, it's the necessity to move from one segment to another segment, as is the very concept of this show. So Ken, uh, I think in our daily lives, at least in our Tuesdays, this is something we do all the time. So let's do it. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive through Protect this podcast from fatal blue bolt damage by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Rafe Ball. Randy Ship, Chris McLaren. Rich Spienauer. And Alex Johnston. So hey there, it's uh, once again time for Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And this time around to someone else is Ellie Akers. Uh, you have worn various hats, uh, literally as well as figuratively. This is true, many uh, hats. And uh, you're just wrapping up as we speak a, a stint of uh, con organizing for Chaosium. Mm -hmm. But you had to give that up because you have now to uh, care full time for a whole bunch of imaginary horses. Yes, my life is a circus of imaginary horses. I own a game called huntandjump.com. I've owned it for 13 years, and it is an online game where you collect and breed your horses. And after 13 years, it is uh, the horses got better? Why, why are oh, they suddenly, yes. why are they suddenly um, uh, full-time horses instead of part-time horses? Mm, it's more that... I was working full time on the horses and part time for Chaos. Right. Okay. Because you know, I love I love the conventions. I wanted to be there, and I just couldn't do both time wise. Right. Um, so basically, for the uninitiated, is this like uh, the equivalent of fantasy football, but for owning horses? I I have never played fantasy football, but people have told me there's a lot of similarities. Uh, kind of goes back to that that pen and paper, uh, where you're going to you know, create your imaginary world, you're going to have your kingdom that you build up, but instead of having a fantasy kingdom, they just have a barn full of imaginary horses. Unlike fantasy football, they're imaginary horses, yes. not real horses. Absolutely, so completely imaginary. So you can't imaginarily own Pharaoh, but you can imaginarily own a horse just as beautiful as Pharaoh. I'm, I'm really impressed with your knowledge of horses there, yes. Well, once a year, I know a horse. <laughs> <laughs> the notion then is to just have the fun of collecting the stable of imaginary horses? Do they uh, do steeplechase and run about? What What do you do with your horses once you've collected so, them? And again, I understand as a 50-year-old man, I am far from the target audience, but what, what do the horses do? Well, it's probably best to talk about what is my target audience. Yes. I started uh, playing horse games when I was a teenager. There was a small number of them online. I was not impressed with how their genetics systems work. Uh, horse people oh. can be incredibly nerdy, and they were doing it wrong, and it drove me up the wall. So I decided I was going to build my own, and I knew I wanted to target women who were teenage and older, right. because they have more free time, they have more free income, and most of the games out there were all focused on young kids. Right. All the horse games were for 11-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And what do they know about horse genetics? Nothing. Nothing. That's why they put up with sloppy genetics for so long. <laughs> yeah, so when, when you have a community that is used to complaining because the agoti gene is being inherited improperly, uh, it's that. yeah, just that's worse what, when it happens. That's frankly what put me off horse gaming forever, <laughs> was the agouti gene. <laughs> so we, we have this community of you know, young to middle-aged women, and they are uh, breeding for as many colors as they can uh, sort of collect. We have a really in-depth genetic system, obviously, since that's my that's my nerd out point, right, right. and a a huge color generator. So all the horses are procedurally generated with thousands of lines of code using a a system that mimics pigment distribution, just like real embryo horses developing. Right, right. So we are, uh, are used to role-playing of, of having a notion of what a gamer is. Mm -hmm. Everybody, by definition, who is playing hide and jump 
is a gamer. Yep. Not only this, but this is a hardcore simulationist game. Yes, it is. Much more of a simulation than probably many of the role-playing games that are going to be played uh, at Gen Con in the next few days. We even have lethal genetics, where if you do a cross that would be lethal in real life, your full dies. So it's like Traveler, oh. your horse yeah. can yeah, die exactly. during character during generation. Exactly. Generation. Doesn't matter how beautiful they were. And I, I hate to keep getting it, because the point, obviously, is to have horses. But the active, the core activity of the game is breeding horses, not competing horses. Actually, right? it's both. And I mean, really, the point of the game is to have the most horses, right? That's the point of yes, life. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's the real point of life. So there is competitions that you enter the horses in, and it's called Hunt and Jump because there was a style of competition in horses called Hunters and Jumpers. Right. So we just shorten it a little bit to make mm -hmm. the name. You compete your horses, they get points, and then those points earn you money so that you can now afford to buy more horses. More horses. Yep. And the horse, uh, their their performance in the hunting and or jumping phase, yep. is that dependent on their rider at all? Or is that just a pure uh, horse metric and you could put a doughy 53-year-old game designer on the horse and they would still hunt and or jump just as well? I think you would do amazingly well <laughs> because all you have to do is... Put your horse in the class and the horse is trained and it does right. it on its own. That's, that's what I suspected. Yeah, because our, our target is these uh, older women who have young families or are working and don't have a lot of time, we try to make sure that we don't have a lot of busy work stuff. Right. It's turn-based hunting and jumping. Right. Exactly. There's right. no horse grinding. It's not, no. Horse, it's not horse twitching. We, yeah. we try to avoid grinding horses in right. this game. Yeah. Yeah. The horse doesn't have to go <laughs> and buy some fish from a fishmonger. That's, right. that's <laughs> what we used to send a horse to do. Um, so when you first started setting this up, obviously mm -hmm. you're targeting the hardest of hardcore people who are going to notice the way the genetic yes. system works. So you're uh, targeting horse nerds. And what were the waves of feedback that you started to get from people that forced you to in incorporate other things? Oh, that is an interesting question. So when we started out, in fact, you couldn't even breed the horses when I, I first started because it was one of those projects where I didn't know how to build a game and I didn't know how to do the programming. And I thought, well, I'll just learn as I go, right? And so we get the, the first wave out and then it's, okay, well, now we need a search. And then now we need to be able to breed the horses. And now the showing system is completely broken and we're going to have to do a 2.0 version where now showing works properly. I know no game designers ever had that issue before, right? right. <laughs> well, I think every horse showing mechanism that Robin has designed has worked perfectly off the game. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to brag. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that brings us to an interesting point because... You are both a role player mm -hmm. and a tabletop role player, and and uh, you know too much about horses. Yes. So presumably, uh, if people are GMing for you, they just rely on you for <laughs> horse advice rather than having implausible horse things. There, there the is game. the running joke that I am Chaosium's in-house horse expert. Right. So what what horse expertise? What's the number one thing that you would suggest to uh, uh, role-playing game designers and GMs? to uh, make their horses seem more like horses and not just sort of scooters that oh, get okay. them from one dungeon to another. I, I would say, hmm, from the from the art side, I would say use real references for, for the equipment that goes on the horse. Right. I see a lot of problems where you look at the, it's called tack, where you look at the tack and it's completely improbable. The saddle would never stay on, the reins aren't attached properly. So I think that's a big one. Make sure you use real art references. Right. And I hear every artist thinking, horses are hard enough to draw as it yes, is. Yes, it is a, a I can't problem. put loops incorrectly. It took me five years to finally find an artist I could reliably have do some of the horse art in my game. It's really difficult to find a good artist. As, as far as the RPG side, I would say remember that a horse is a fear-based animal that when a horse sees a giant lizard, it's gonna run. Your horses, unless you have very specifically trained for combat, they're not combat animals. Right, but that's why you pay extra for the war horse. Exactly, the war right. horse, there should be a difference between your war horse and your just regular everyday horse. And your, and your, and your standard horse. Mm -hmm. And now is there, um, uh, cause the thing that I, and I, I know a little bit about uh, not being horse people, but I, I know that uh, often in, in games, horses are like cars, mm -hmm. and you just drive them, and you, know, you put hay in it every now and again, but you can just keep driving it forever, and that's not true. That no, not at all. Anytime you would go anywhere on a horse in the real world, whether you're a cowboy or a Mongol, 
you had remounts. You had like mm-hmm. two or three horses that tag along behind you because carrying a big doughy cowboy is, is hard and, and you need to swap out. Let's face it. Player characters often have a lot of gear. You yep. can't expect a horse to carry you and all your stuff. And your gold. Your mm. valuable gold. So remounts is, is the thing that I would I would say, obviously. I love that tack, idea. And then uh, fear-based. Is there something that is just amazingly cool about horses that not enough people incorporate? I mean, besides their horses, just look at them. <laughs> I, I would say a big myth with horses is that the the stallion is the boss and is the lead of the herd yeah. and it's not the mare the head mare is the boss and she gets to decide if the stallion's even allowed to come around yeah so i, I think married game designers have got that one figured yeah. out yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so the so the energy in in horse uh folks is very, very similar to gamer energy. And it's oh, yes. super fanatical. They're totally into it. They love everything about it. It seems like it's kind of a welcoming community. You like horses. I like horses. Let's be best friends. That Does that translate then? Are, is gamer horse people or horsey game people, are they like quadruple regular people? <laughs> just even better? Is that, do you get that? Or is or is it just... So, so I say this with the most love. Horse people can be rather pedantic at times because there is that strong, nerdy knowledge streak where your status in the community is based on how much you know. Mm -hmm. So there can be a problem in some horse communities where they're not super welcoming and friendly. Just like with role-playing communities, sometimes you get some that are very sort of inclusive and or exclusive and and don't want outsiders. Uh, That's one of the things when I built Hunt and Jump, I really tried to, to focus on that. You no, know, this needs to be a friendly community that anyone can come play. Right. And of course, there's a huge class component because horses aren't cheap. Yes, horses are very expensive. And growing I rode for 20 years. And growing up, there was a very clear line between the kids that had the backyard pony and the kids that had the nice, well-trained show horse. And, you know, once in a while, maybe the kid with the little pony could could get ahead, but not very right. often. So uh, is that reflected? Is the, uh, is the culture of horse people reflected in Hunt and Jump? No, actually. That is something that I really tried to to get away from, that, that classism, that divide. I really wanted it to be uh, kind of everyone together in a big community. You want an unsullied mm-hmm. fantasy of horse ownership. Yes. In which you still sell horses to get more, or you get prize money to exactly. get more yeah. horses. So. We're, we're, we're keeping it's a little, little bit rainbow, you know, rose-tinted glasses. Right. Yes, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a horse-topia, yes. if, if I may. So um, is your experience when you're at a, at a game convention, is it basically you and Anne Dupuy hanging out, smoking cigarettes, and mocking everyone? Or <laughs> do, do you and other horse people, uh, because often at, at a convention you'll, you'll be like wearing, I don't know, a stiff little finger shirt, and you'll see someone else in a stiff little, mm-hmm. hey, man, and then you've got like a brotherhood within a brotherhood. The horse to gamer overlap has to be strong. Yes. And to you asked earlier, and so to back up a little bit, there is a lot of overlap between, um, at least in, in my community that I've seen, between people who are playing my game and people who are role players. And in fact, not that long ago, I you know, posted a thread on our forum of, hey, what do you guys play? And there was a lot of you know, D&D and Pathfinder, a lot of Call of Cthulhu players. It was really cool to see that, that much overlap especially since my community is 95 plus percent women. Mm-hmm. So to have so many that are also role-playing gamers was really cool. So are you looking to expand the game? Are there new things that you uh, need to do after all of these years? Or is it just a matter of continuing to maintain uh, what you've got? What do you, how do you expand something that's been So, so this is my so passion project, and I will always be doing something on it. At the moment, we're doing a big behind-the-scenes sort of code update. And then after that, we're actually going to be looking at taking our uh, 2D procedurally uh, generated horse art, and we're going to be start uh, moving towards three-dimensional. Wireframe horses. Yes. Right. Now, the knowledge that you have about horses, and I, I assume that putting it into the game would, would be wrong on every level, but with the knowledge you have about horses, it seems like some of that would be transferable to pegasuses and unicorns I and other think so. fun horse-based fantasy creatures. Do you see that as a hunt and uh, jump spin-off that would have fantasy? Do you just see it as having this body of knowledge that you can then 
uh, make a, a, a supplement to something that's going to be, you think you know uh, Pegasus's. Ha <laughs> ha, you do not. I mean, where, where do you see it coming sort of background into fantasy or is it like, the heck with fantasy. Horses are magical enough. So that's actually something we have really talked about. I would want to keep them in their own separate game because a lot of people really want that hardcore simulationist right, reality. Right, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, and there's uh, not a lot of data on Pegasus genetics. Yeah, so we would have to make up all our own genetics and then of course the all of the generation art generation systems would have to be updated for that. Mm -hmm. But it is something we would really like to do because that would be a ton of fun. And in fact, last year at Gen Con, I had a really wonderful conversation with Greg Stafford where we sat down and wrote down all of the mythical horses we could think of. And he had some great ideas of some of those Asian um, horses that I had never even heard of, these fantasy creatures that, you know, I have kept those notes safe and I'm really hoping we can make a game out of that. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, I, I think you probably have a, a horse that you need to uh, ride off back <laughs> to the convention for, probably. Uh, so thank you so much for stopping by to chat with us. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once again to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We will pause on the landing to uh, wave at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on into the Edwardian parlor where, in his smoking jacket, awaits the consulting occultist. And this time around, the consulting occultist is going to tell us about Brother Twelve. And again, this uh, story has a Canadian angle to it. Uh, so, Does it ever. Uh, uh, so I... I felt obliged once more to do a little bit of extra research and, and contribute uh, to what the uh, consulting occultist has to say. So, Brother 12 was a, a guy named uh, Edward Arthur Wilson, and uh, his main fame, the exciting part of the story, happens uh, in the 20s and into the 30s. And so, uh, first of all, picture a, uh, a guy with a pointy beard and sometimes uh, wearing a Homburg is described by uh, fellow employees when he was a, a clerk working, uh, he was an express clerk working in Victoria, British Columbia in Canada at one point, uh, although he was uh, uh, born in uh, in England. He was described as slim, sallow, and dapper with a receding chin and a large Adam's apple. And so uh, obviously he's the sort of person who, if he doesn't want to remain a clerk his whole life, is perhaps going to have to found a cult and perhaps engage in the sorts of things that cult leaders have historically gotten up to. But this one is a little bit different in that his cult is kind of early for a classic, very recognizable modern uh, cult organization and therefore uh, draws heavily on uh, theosophy, uh, among many other things, because, of course, theosophy is, is itself a giant stew pot of elements. And uh, if you want to... Uh, grift a bunch of uh, uh, wealthy people to help you set up your commune, Ken. Uh, theosophy is as good a starting point as any. And better than most, apparently. I mean, it, it, it's worked time and again. Uh, he set up the Aquarian Foundation so that people could more easily give him fat bank. Um, he uh, was one of the 12 brothers, which is why he's brother 12. All the brothers are sort of avatars or, or, or uh, arhats of the ascended masters of the White Lodge. Uh, there's 12 of them, and uh, he would be the 12th. Right. Well, one for each sign of the Zodiac. Right. He was Aquarius, I think. Yes. Hence his foundation. Yes. Um, and uh, 
even as a lad, uh, he was being singled out by a visionary experience. So he was visited by angels when he was a childhood. Uh, and he grew a cool goatee, yeah. which is very important. Big old pointy beard. And he was a merchant marine before he was a, a clerk. Uh, and so he, he traveled the world and I guess, uh, you know, got to rub shoulders with all of these uh, secret masters, I suppose. Um, and uh, it was in 1924. He was in the south of France when he had this vision that told him he had this great destiny. And uh, three years later, as you suggested, he forms this foundation. Now, when he forms the Aquarian Foundation, he makes what will later turn out to be, Ken, a tactical error. Uh-oh. If, if not just a strategic one, because his secretary of this organization is a man named Robert England, and he's an ex-Secret Service agent. Uh, and uh, if you're going to perform a lot of financial finagling, perhaps involving many mason jars full of gold, uh, perhaps don't get a guy from uh, the Department of the Treasury <laughs> to be the right. secretary of your organization. So he makes that mistake, but that's just lying there for a moment. And so yeah. uh, he finds the ideal location for his cult in British Columbia. Now, uh, B.C., is uh, to Canada uh, what California is to uh, the United States in more ways than one. And just as Los Angeles and San Francisco are hotbeds of cult activity in the 20s, uh, he decides uh, to uh, set up near Nanaimo, uh, B.C., of course, famous for the uh, Nanaimo bar dessert that we discussed in an earlier episode. And uh, he sets up a community, uh, it's sort of unclear between different accounts, whether it was on or facing the De Courcy Islands, which are small islands. Well, off. he started out in Cedar by the Sea, and then he expanded yes. to the De Courcy Islands. He started building more and more uh, facilities on these various little islands, and some suspected it was just a way to keep the cult members tired out and not thinking because he made them go build all the buildings. Right. Uh, he had about 100 members of his cult at, at its peak, and uh, the big one, his place... Uh, where you weren't allowed to go, was called the House of Mystery, obviously uh, presaging the uh, DC horror comics there. Yes. When he was uh, imparting his wisdom to his flock, he would affect a yellow robe, people. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Dun, dun, dun. He was the cultist in yellow. And if you were going to keep all of your uh, wealthy people in your compound, uh, working hard, and he would work you harder if you ran out of money, because he would then be trying to get rid of you. It doesn't do to just merely say that you have the wisdom of the secret masters at your elbow. That wears out eventually. But why don't you throw in an apocalypse? Uh, because uh, he predicted that the planet Aquarius uh, would collide with the Earth and destroy all mankind except for, uh, guess what, Ken? Chosen few. I, I hope it's a saving remnant of some kind. Yes. And what else do cult leaders uh, get up to in addition to... Uh, Emptying the bank accounts of their flock. Why? They canoodle with cult ladies. Indeed, yes. Not their so, wives. Uh, he had a couple of objects of his canoodling. The first one was a, a young, dark-eyed woman named Mrs. Myrtle Baumgartner. And when he laid eyes on her, the missus tells you that uh, she was uh, already uh, spoken for. But turned out she was an incarnation of Isis, uh, or so he said, and therefore would have to have sacred congress with him in order to birth... Uh, the new incarnation of the god Horus. And her husband did not take kindly to this, but she was persuaded, uh, at mm -hmm. least to some extent. But uh, you can only engage in so much uh, embezzlement and adultery be before your flock, particularly if one of them is an ex-member of the Secret Service, begins to get restive. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 1929, England brings charges against him, uh, and he's supported by one of the uh, rich... Uh, matrons who he's been uh, fleecing. And so uh, he faces uh, legal action in uh, British Columbia court for uh, embezzlement. And during the trial, the Crown Council forgets his words and uh, several spectators keel over. They're overcome. And uh, this, of course, leads people to conclude that black magic is at work. Yes. The, uh, the members of the cult that are bringing the suit by the way, don't say we were rooked by a con man. What they say is he was possessed by a black adept. Yes, because otherwise they'd be the dummies. <laughs> they'd be, they'd look stupid. Yes. But uh, apparently Brother 12 had attempted to perform the sixth initiation 
And I don't need to tell you how dangerous that can be. It's a logarithmic scale. So each initiation yeah. is more dangerous than the last. Right. It's two to the sixth worse than a regular in initiation. But he was at that point possessed by a black adept and people saw imps circle him and an evil monk spirit would float around in his presence. Possibly the black adept, the phantom menace, if you may, uh, if you will, um, uh, lurking nearby to work his black adeptly power. And that is why they, they were bringing a suit. Not that they were rooked, not that they were gulled, not that they objected to their money being given to literally the Senator from the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama, because why stop at theosophy embezzlement and canoodling when you could also, uh, support, uh, Senator James Thomas Heflin, um, uh, who was at that, uh, at that instance rising up against the, uh, hated Catholic power that had made Al Smith the nominee of the Democratic Party. And, uh, T Senator Heflin knew who was behind that, uh, possibly black adepts of some sort and, um, uh, wasn't standing for it and, Brother 12 is there for him. He's there for Senator Heflin. Right. Um, so this court case does not knock out uh, Brother 12. And in fact, afterwards, he acquires a new consort, a, a woman named Zura Valdez, a.k.a. Madam Z, or as uh, she was known in her actual legal documents, Mrs. Mabel Scottow. And uh, right. she arrives and begins to uh, really concentrate on uh, oppressing the, the cultists and uh, working them harder and harder. And, and oddly, can an atmosphere of paranoia seizes the compound? Yeah. Well, the, the, the first court case, despite uh, all the magic, did not go well for uh, Brother 12. The Aquarian Foundation was legally dissolved, uh, but they doubled down and just have the sort of the people who believed Brother 12 and the new people, including uh, Madam Z, uh, who joined Brother 12 afterward, are in this new uh, thing that's on one of the islands uh, opposite Cedar. And I think that's one of the DeCourcy Islands where where he is at uh, in this uh, sort of new paranoid stage. Uh, Madam Z was also a black magician in addition to her other uh, skills. She would put curses on your mail, which I think means she would tear up your mail and throw it out. <laughs> and she would um, uh, hit you with a whip if you spoke back to Brother 12 in addition to her other uh, bad attitudes. And so all of the whip hitting and gun toting finally attracts the attention of the provincial government, I guess. Yes, because they, they went to the UK to pick up munitions, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I would have thought there would be guns just to the immediate south, but they went to the UK for, for their guns and ammo. They may have said that they were going to get munitions, but they were actually just going to the UK for theater. Uh, that could have been it. Right. Um, and so in, in, in April 33... It finally all comes to an, a head, and uh, Brother 12 and, uh, and Madam Z, they, they see the occult writing on the wall, and they abscond with, uh, to use the words of uh, a journalist named Howard O'Hagan, who wrote a 1960 article in McLean's uh, magazine, which is sort of the Time magazine in Canada. They absconded with, quote, an estimated half million dollars of their money, there being the cultists, most of it in gold coins sealed in a 143 pint preserving jars. Now, it's at this point that I feel I need to inject a note of fun ruining into the proceedings, because that seems like a very precise number of jars full of gold. And Canadian myths and legends have a way of having gold in them. And so I, I have no doubt that they absconded uh, to, uh, turns out, Switzerland uh, with a bunch of money. But the precise details of all this uh, legendary gold... Uh, maybe, as they say, legendary. I mean, the guy who wrote the book uh, on Brother 12 does say that there was something around $400,000 worth of gold coins. Now, he I don't think he gives a jar-specific number, but it you know, because the uh, the apocalypse was coming, you couldn't keep your money in paper, so you'd have to transfer your fortune into gold, which Brother 12 would keep for you because of the wisdom. So... Part of it is just this sort of, uh, it, it's like a, a, a method of bilking his, his members to get them to buy American gold coins and then hide them in, in his jars. And that was part of the way that, you know, you would know that you were trusted as you got to carry the heavy gold jars to the new hiding place, which was often on his tugboat, the Akenuaten, which, uh, escaped as it turned out 
uh, from the, uh, from the, the fall. I do want to mention that the second legal case was made possible despite all the black magic that Madam Z and, uh, Brother 12 could throw at them by a First Nations relic. It turns out the witnesses were scared to testify, what with one of the witnesses in the previous trial having vanished in Seattle and him magically cursing various court authorities, uh, and they didn't want to testify. But the lawyer, the, the crown uh, uh, prosecutor, I suppose, said, uh, I have here a lip ornament from a Haida medicine woman. And if you hold it during testimony, because it's from this area, it will overcome his sort of generic magic with cool local magic. And that is how they gained the, the magical power slash moral fortitude to actually testify. And in, in April 1933, get the final judgment, which uh, Brother 12 and Madam Z, of course, reacted to by destroying everything on the island uh, and fleeing in their tugboat. Right. And sinking I'm sure their... local Haida people were like, oh, yeah, now you like our magic as opposed to the rest of the time when you're trying now to you ban like our magic. Money. Well, you know, when you're stopping a black adept, needs must. And let let any let any player character who has not borrowed, quote unquote, a, a First Nations relic to fight monsters throw the first stone here. It's not appropriation if you give it back. Um, right. And so in uh, 34... Uh, he either dies in Switzerland or his latest assumed identity dies in Switzerland. Um, and uh, that is uh, nearly the end of the story. Although in uh, 1956, uh, someone is uh, rooting around in, in, the, in the good old house of mystery, which is not uh, yet completely uh, collapsed in the, uh, in the damp of uh, uh, the, the De Courcy Islands. And uh, they find a, Cranium roughly carved into the shape of a bowl wrapped in sacking. Cool. And uh, medical authorities did testing on it and uh, determined that it was uh, the skull of a woman in her 20s who had died in about 1931. So he was accused of uh, murder multiple times. And there we find a, uh, a human skull uh, from a young woman. Uh, was used in uh, ceremonial purposes, so uh, could have been him, could have been uh, Madame Z, uh, but uh, that uh, that does not look good. Nope, it's not a good look. And the best part is that in 1934, when he is in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, and he dies, his death certificate is signed by a doctor who is a member of the Aquarian Foundation. Dun, dun, dun. dun, dun. dun. So perhaps he uh, faked his death. Yes. And uh, there are sightings of him in San Francisco and elsewhere uh, after his death, as there are with so many of your dark prophets. Yes, identifiable with his uh, mason jar full of gold that he uses to uh, pay for his... And uh, his beard. His hot dogs and drinks. Uh, so basically, uh, this is uh, right in the middle of Trail of Cthulhu territory. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can be, you can do the part in the 20s and make a call of Cthulhu. You can do the part in the... Uh, early 30s where things are getting really bad and make a trail of Cthulhu and uh, there's murder and court cases and embezzlement and people getting whipped I mean, and it's, uh, it's, is there it's, anything it's not hard need? to figure out how to make this a story hook for a game let's put it that yes. way in, in fact it, you know it's already sort of a template for the sorts of things that happen in, in Lovecraft stories and so uh, the planet Aquarius that's coming to wipe everything out obviously that's you know, Azathoth or somebody. and uh, Or it's or it's Cthulhu, who is, of course, uh, underwater, just as Aquarius is a water sign. And uh, other than that, I, I would say that scenario writes itself, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and you have a, uh, a a possible villain to turn up, that it's the Brother 12, but he's dead. And he's very important to him that you not... Um, uh, reveal the fact that he is still alive and he will he will hex you if you do um he also might be looking for his magic ring which apparently he lost sometime in the 30s uh which is why the the second group was able to rebel against him according to him and you could have a a, a sort of early pre pre uh, delta green adventure where the the skull turns up or his uh, uh pint jars of uh, of gold could still be uh, lurking around uh, causing uh, mystical havoc uh, in a contemporary uh, horror game, and and as we said, he wears a yellow robe, so yep. he could be channeling Carcosa rather than uh, Aquarius. Aquarius just sounds better uh, if you're trying to gull the rubes, and so uh, there's all sorts of opportunities to use uh, Brother Twelve, and and for once, 
you're not even blackguarding a historical figure. He's self-blackguarded, and uh, you're free to use him as a, as right. a villain without qualm of uh, slandering the dead. Um, and on that note, uh, I think uh, since this scenario writes itself, Ken, uh, we can pronounce our work here done for uh, yet another week. Yeah, it wrote itself. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askvagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from tarnishing in the silverware drawer by emulating beloved Patreon backers. Robert Wolf. Ryan Lassiter. Tenant Reed. Andrew Dacey. And Mark Galliotti. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on brand design, Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>